When I was in college, I volunteered with the ministry a lot of you are familiar with, Young Life. Young Life's mission is to reach teenagers and people far from God and introduce them to Jesus Christ and help them grow in their faith. Now, as a volunteer leader, I wasn't on staff. I was on a team of other college students. So we would serve together. We would do Young Life Club together. We would go to this high school and try to introduce new kids to Jesus. It was a great time in my life. Now, picture yourself, maybe, you know, college didn't happen for you, but picture yourself right out of high school. You're on your own for the first time in your life. You are living in a new city, like I moved away to go to college, and you're basically living off of ramen noodles and powdered lemonade mix. Someone comes up to you and says, hey, I love that you're serving with Young Life. Can we take you to dinner? And you don't get the creeper vibe. (laughs) You get the warm, like, oh, yeah, that would be really great. Like, of course you're going to say yes to that, right? So this family, uh, they had two daughters that were involved with Young Life, but their real primary focus was actually us, the leaders. They were taking care of us throughout the year. We would get little notes and cards and just these little blessings, and it was always coming from this family. And there was one time, actually a couple of times in college, it was usually about once a year, where this family would invite my whole Young Life team out to dinner. So you're a college kid. You're living off a of ramen. Someone says to you, let's go to dinner. You say... Yes, of course I want to go to dinner. And we went to a restaurant that still holds a very special place in my heart, which some of you may love, Macaroni Grill. When you're in college, Macaroni Grill's awesome. (laughs) I know it's kind of a step up from Olive Garden, which is saying something, but I think it's still a really great place. I like it. This family would host us at Macaroni Grill. That's where we would meet them. And we'd walk into this restaurant. Some of us would like, you know, kind of get dressed up because this is probably going to be one of the only nice meals we ate for a while. We would walk into this restaurant, and there would be a table, a long table, maybe 10, 15 people seated at this table, and that was our table, right? Like, that was the biggest table in the restaurant, and it was for us. Like, that feels really special, right? And we'd walk in, and this couple that were blessing us with this meal, they would welcome us, and they'd give us a big old hug, and it was great to just sit there and go through courses, right? Because when you're in college, you're like, oh yeah, meals have courses sometimes. This is amazing. And we could order whatever we wanted, and the family would cover us. They paid for us. It's a great picture of grace. It's a great picture of abundance. None of us did anything to earn being in that place. We were just a bunch of goofy college kids. And what we were able to receive in that moment was something I'll never forget. It was, it was God's grace given to us, so we would just enjoy it. It was God's abundance given to a bunch of college kids. And when I started thinking about this week, when I started thinking about how we're wrapping up the sermon series on Psalm 23, how we've been getting ready for Easter, I want to think about ways that I can see Easter and I can see my neighbors being here positively, right? I want to invite people into something that I know is going to bring them joy, just like this dinner, still to this day, fond memories, joyful memories for me of being in fellowship, of a place that was prepared for me specifically. And maybe you can relate to that. A lot of us have been married, and when you get married, apparently there's this table that you're supposed to sit at, right? And it's got your name on it, and your seat is that seat at that table. That feels special. In a similar way, our God has prepared a table for us. But in the scriptures, it's not like we might think. It's a little bit like Macaroni Grill, but it's different than Macaroni Grill. It's a table richly set. It's prepared for us, but the context isn't what we expect. The context is different. 
Same thing goes for the other elements in today's verse. The oil, the anointing, and the cup. These are things that we might say like, yeah, there's, there's a real positive expression to that. I'm glad that that's in the scripture. But my, my premise for us today is that there's actually more nuance to what we might expect for these items. So our outline, it should be in your bulletin, is very simple. It's the table and the oil and the cup that the psalmist writes about. And the thesis kind of unites all three like this. Jesus' table, his oil, and his cup are for the broken. His table and his oil and his cup are for the broken. Not for the perfect, but for the people who can say, you know what, I don't have it. And I'm going to come be with the God who gives to me. So let's start with the table. I've got a slide that we can share for just a little bit. And this will kind of stay up behind me so that we can keep this visual in mind. A table setting a nice place to sit. That's how the image starts out here in verse 5. David writes of the shepherd, you prepare a table before me. The message translation says it this way, you sit me down for a six-course meal. I didn't even know there were six courses in a meal. The message translation, I think, is so wonderful because it points to that abundance that we were talking about, right? Like for me, I go to Macaroni Grill. But if you keep going, the passage gets a little more complicated, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Why would my enemies be at Macaroni Grill? Why would my enemies be at table? Sure, the people on my Young Life team in that setting, we didn't get along together all the time, but they weren't my enemies, they were my friends. Why would a table abundantly laid out with a beautiful setting be a place where my enemies would show up? What what does that mean? Well, there's a couple of theories that I encountered this week. One theory, this came from Derek Kidner, who wrote a great commentary on the Psalms, is that David was having his celebration dinner after a military victory. So during this time, according to Kidner, if you were a conquering general, if you just won a battle over another army, right? So in David's case, it would have been his victory over the Philistines. It would have been his victory over Goliath. You would have marched in the leaders of the army you just defeated, And you, the general, would be sitting at your table, having a wonderful meal laid out in front of you, while your enemies were forced to stand there and watch you eat. Now, that sounds a little awkward, but in that culture, that was a shaming, a downplaying of the importance of the other people, right? It was putting them in a position of servitude, in a position where, like, no, you don't get to belong at my table with me. This is just for me. I beat you. Don't you forget it. Now, thankfully, we are so enlightened. None of us would ever want to do that to any of our enemies, right? Nobody would ever want to just grind it in just a little bit in the face of someone who has wronged you. This is too hard for us to relate to. I get that. That's fine. But here's what it might mean for us in a different way. God provides for us in our chaos. God provides for you and for me in the chaos. Think about it this way. When Jesus is on the boat with his disciples, they're out in the middle of the lake and the storm comes up, you know later after Jesus calmed the storm, after they got back to dry land, that those disciples never forgot that moment because it was their God providing for them in the midst of chaos. David understood that God was his provider in the midst of chaos. You set a table before me in the presence of my enemies, in the presence of all the crazy stuff going on around me. And this is a word for us today, friends. If you think about all the different movements, all the different things that have swept through just in the last year, right? Think of the Me Too movement. Think of the never again movement. Yesterday, the march for our lives. Think of the racial tension that we see flaring up over and over and over again. We see these things, we see the marginalization of all these different communities, and we go, this is chaotic. 
And we have passion for some of these things. I know some of you were all about these different movements. I know some of you have been deeply involved in them, and I'm grateful for that. But it is easy to look at those movements and those things happening in our culture and go, this is out of control. Where is God in this? Why is God allowing these things to happen to us? Instead, what I propose is that we look at the things around us, whatever movement it is, whatever chaotic moment we're in, and say, this must be where God is. This must be the moment that God wants me to look at him and say, no, you are providing for me, and I will praise you for your provision now. David understood this. The author of the psalm that we're reading understood this. I mentioned a moment ago that he had military conflicts, right? That he got into, that the nation of Israel was in different wars, different conflicts with different nations. Not only was there that external conflict, if you think about David's life, it is, I mean, it's a soap opera. Like, there are so many things that go haywire in David's life. 1 Samuel 19 through 24, we've talked about this a few times. David's on the run, some scholars believe for years, from murderous King Saul. His boss wants to kill him, take his life from him, and he goes on the run in the desert. That's chaotic. That, a king shouldn't have to live like that, but he did. If you go a little bit further in David's story, 2 Samuel uh, chapters 13 through 18, whoo! It is a mess, bloody, awful things that were done by whom? By David's family, like to one another. If you think your family is messed up, go read 2 Samuel 13 through 18. Be assured. Yes, your family's still messed up, but not like that. Like it's bad for David. But above all those things, right? We got external conflict. We got internal conflicts. We can kind of relate to that. Above all of that, if we think about you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, what if... The enemy is you and me. What if our greatest enemy at table with us is us? Andy Stanley, a pastor in Atlanta, says it this way, wherever you go, whatever you leave behind, whatever job you change, whatever marriage you quit, whatever happens to you, the next place you go, the lowest common denominator is you. And you go with the baggage, you go with the brokenness that you brought with you to those other places. And I don't see that as a condemnation of people that have been through that. I see that as a reflection of, wow, like I'm still just as messed up as I was those years ago or when I made that poor decision. That is still with me. Thank God for Jesus' redemption. Amen? Because eventually something's going to change. The brokenness, the enemy at the table is me. It's my secrets. It's my sins. It's my failures. It's the fact that I still struggle with acceptance. Even after all those years after being bullied and all the other things that are part of my story, part of your story, the enemy at the table is me. And David understood this. Think about the sins that, he, that we just know about from the witness of the scriptures, right? We know he had moments of arrogance. He was prideful. He committed adultery murder. He had to lie to cover it up. Some scholars would argue that David's pattern of behavior eventually led to a civil war. So if you didn't start a civil war this week, like, good. You're in a better off spot than David. This is how I might phrase it if I were to sort of reposition David's words. David writes, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my addiction and my junk and my fear and my breakup and the job that I lost and my divorce, and the kids at school that will not give me the time of day, you prepare a table before me, mighty God. And in you I belong. Because we got to belong before we believe. So isn't it good news, church? Isn't it such good news 
that even if the enemy is outside us, even if it's within our inner circle, even if it's tearing us up inside, that our God's table is still provided for us, that his fellowship is still real. He's not faking it. He wants you to be at table with him. He's not putting out all this stuff to all of a sudden say to you like, no, just kidding. Like if I'd gone to Macaroni Grill when I was in college and this couple said, no, you got to pay for it. That's a bad joke. I don't want that joke. Like, don't make me pick up that tab. So what do we do with all this? This week when chaos comes, when you're riding that tidal wave at your work or at home, this is normal. This is okay. God, I'm going to celebrate in advance how you are going to help my faith thrive through this chaos because you provide in the chaos. I'm not going to wait for the chaos to be over to start looking for your work in my life. I'm going to look for it right now because it's somewhere. Recognize that the table is prepared for you and because the preparation for you is perfect, you don't have to be perfect. Because the table that is prepared for you, the place that God has for you in his heart and his story, because it is perfect, you don't have to be perfect. You can mess something up. You can do a bad lesson plan. You can let somebody down. It's okay. There will be grace in the week ahead, friends. And grace, especially for those of us who long to be perfect and know that we can't be. Recognize that the table is prepared for the people in our lives who are going to look at this simple little piece of paper and go, I, I do need to be a part of that. It would be so fun to be able to laugh and play around with my kids right out here at Peter Kirk Park, a safe place. Wouldn't that be great? What if you giving that flyer to somebody this week just changes their week, changes their life, because you show them that they have a place at the table and it is perfectly set for them. Have courage. And finally, be careful of the enemy within. Be careful of how the enemy at the table is still us. If you are struggling, if you know what I'm talking about when I say that it's the enemy within, I hope there are other people who know how you're struggling. I hope there are people that you're safe with, whether it's your spouse, whether it's a roommate, whether it's your mom, and you call her on the phone while you're driving, whoever it is, do not suffer and struggle by yourself. Don't do it. That's what the devil wants. The devil always wants us to believe that our sins are only our sins, and if anybody really knew the truth about us, they wouldn't love us. Let's just say no to that this week, huh? How about that? How about we just say no? Let's do that. Get it up. Get it out. Jesus has prepared a table for you and me, and it's in the midst of chaos, so come to him. And be considering in the week ahead who needs to be at that table with him. Okay, so that's table. We can take that slide down. Let's put up the next slide about oil. Now, this is cooking oil. The oil that David would have been referred to, referring to is a little bit different. And we'll talk about what that means. But the oil, just like the table, is for the broken, right? That's our theme. The table's for the broken. The oil is for the broken. This comes from the line, you anoint my head with oil. So top level of that, anointing is an important part of the Bible's connection to leadership. If you look back just in the history kind of connected to this psalm, Saul was anointed, even though he went crazy. David was anointed as king. Jesus was anointed. We'll talk about this a little bit later on. In the New Testament church, when leaders were brought up, when they were raised up in the church, before they were sent out to do the mission that God wanted for them, they were anointed. Anointing unites all these people together, and it unites people who are called in to leadership. Now, some scholars would say that right here in Psalm 23, verse 4, that shepherd metaphor, right? You know how it started out, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The sheep metaphor, for some scholars, comes to an end in verse 4. 
because it starts talking in verse 5 about you prepare a table for me. Sheep don't typically sit at table. This is no longer an image we're going to continue. But I heard something at our teaching team this meeting that really fascinated me about how this oil image actually applies to sheep. Now, I didn't know this until we started talking about it, but there are shepherds who will anoint, touch their sheep with oil if they've been injured. To cover up a sheep's injury with oil, it's not going to solve the problem, but it'll it'll potentially create kind of a balm so that that injury can heal. Some sheep uh, are more prone to pests and to sort of bugs and flies and that kind of thing. So a scented oil, you might even call it an essential oil, could be dipped onto the sheep, and then that scent would keep away the bugs. But here's the most fascinating thing I learned about sheep and oil this week. During mating season, dude sheep, rams, because of course it's dudes that are going to do stupid stuff. What do rams like to do during mating season? How many of you have seen these YouTube videos and late night PBS specials? Boom! They want to butt their heads together. They want to put the other guy down. Thank goodness humans are so much more evolved. (laughs) We would never do this, guys. The rams can hurt each other pretty badly this way. So if you're a shepherd, imagine this. You've got two rams that are going at it, and you're like pulling your hair out like, you idiots, like you're just going to hurt each other again. Some shepherds will take oil, and this sounds like a very precarious thing to do. This is like surgical, but they will coat the horns of the rams with oil. And in so doing, the horns become kind of viscous. And so when the rams will hit their heads together, the horn will slide off. The horn won't create as much damage because a viscous substance hitting another viscous substance ain't going to land much of a punch. When I was in middle school, I'd love to have done this to the bullies around me because then, you know, they would have just slipped right off of me, right? It's hard to land a punch on a slippery target. Now, here's our takeaway about anointing. God will protect us even from ourselves. God will protect you and me even from ourselves. If the shepherd looks at these rams whom he loves and says, I know what you guys are going to go do, and I got to help you because you're not going to stop doing it. And he anoints them with oil. He covers over them. He shows his intentional love for them. He is protecting those rams from themselves, from the destruction they can bring on themselves. Every one of us who has followed Jesus for any length of time has some kind of story about how Jesus protected you from yourself a business decision you could have made that actually turned out to be completely corrupt and could have led you to be fired. A conversation that you're about to have, only later you realize, oh, thank God I didn't have it. The timing wasn't right for that. Early on in my marriage, uh, Jill and I were getting into an argument, which I usually started. And this is like within the first year or two. And I was ready. I was, as she was talking, I was formulating my response, which is such a great way to listen to somebody, right? I'm formulating my response in my head And I'm going, oh man, this is it. Like, I'm going to throw this grenade and the argument's over. None of you have ever done this, I'm sure. This is just me. Formulating the argument in my head, I'm ready to go. And when it came time for me to talk, I I was shut down. It was like a fog kind of descended on my head, and I could not say, I can't even remember what the grenade was that I was going to throw. Like, to this day, I have no memory of it. It's gone. God protected me from myself from being a real jerk to the woman I love. God has protected each of us from ourselves, just like those rams are protected through the anointing. This week ahead, see if you can look back in your history. If you keep a journal, go back and read through your journal and go, man, where was it that God protected me? Oh, 
Because when that happened, then this didn't happen. You know what I mean? Go back and give yourself some time to reflect on where God has protected you from yourself. Date night, those of you who are couples who are married, next time you go on date night, maybe this is a great conversation topic. When has God protected you from yourself, honey? Could be fun. Could be a little explosive. You may want to get an extra round at happy hour. I'm just saying... That's a good conversation to have so we can see where God's handiwork has been in our lives. And I'll just say this. If you can't connect to the grenade analogy, if you can't connect to any of that, how are you at listening to God? Because I know the better tuned I am to hearing his voice through scripture, the better tuned I am to him through prayer, through the times that I know I can be with him, the less likely it is I'm going to go follow a voice that says, you should go hit that guy on the head. Like you should go do the headbutting thing. That would be a really good decision for you right now. God's voice overshadows those voices and says, no, this is who I want you to be right now. And his anointing, his covering over of us, his calling us to be at his table is how we know we're in his plan, in his pattern. So think about that in the week ahead. That's oil. Final image that we'll put up on the screen is the cup. And I love this image of a cup because it literally is the passage in front of us. This is my cup overflows. Now, the Hebrew word behind overflows comes up again in Psalm 66. I'll just read a really brief section of it for us. We believe this is also a Psalm of David. Psalm 66. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. We went through fire and through water. Yet you have brought us out to a spacious place. A spacious place. That's the same word that is used for my cup overflows. Overflows and spacious you got plenty of room to run around. you got all the things that you need to be the person that you are called to be. Now, this is fairly easy for Western Americans to embrace, is it not? If you have a job, if you make above $34,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of the world's income earners. Congratulations. There are many in our community that do not make $34,000 a year. There are many in our community for whom a meal is a struggle, which is why we participate in the Pantry Packs program. But for most of us, this, this idea of an overflowing cup of God providing for us, if we really look at it, despite all of our wants, despite all of our needs, typically we can say, yeah, I get it. My cup does overflow. Jesus had everything. His cup was certainly overflowing. At the end of his life, at the end of his, ministry, his earthly ministry, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He had it all. The devil even said to him, like, yeah, you got it. Like, you don't need anything. But the cup that he was called to embrace was not the cup of overflowing like we might expect. The cup that he was called to embrace, and this is what we talk about to make sure that when we get to Easter, Easter is something we really dwell in and celebrate, not just have it wash over us. The cup for Jesus was riding into Jerusalem and looking at all these people cheering for him and knowing exactly what was going to happen a week later. That's the cup of suffering. Think about it. If you knew that everybody at your work, the next time you just killed it on a project, if you could just picture them one week from now getting ready to line up and destroy you, that celebration wouldn't be a whole lot. It wouldn't mean a whole lot to you. Jesus knew what was coming, and he knew that the cup that he was called to embrace was not the cheering crowds, was not people throwing their coats, was not the palm branches. That was not his cup, not yet. His cup first was the cup that he had to drink in the garden. It's a metaphor that he used when he was praying, God, let this cup pass from me. This is Matthew 26. If it can go to anybody else, let it go to somebody else. But if not, let your will be done. 
In Jesus' perfect knowledge, shared from all eternity, not only did he know that the people who cheered for him as he came into Jerusalem would betray him, he knew what awaited him. And he wrestled with that in the garden. And what I would ask is, have you been there? Have you been to the place where you know you are going to take on some suffering, you're going to experience some pain, and it's just going to be rough for a while? If you're an accountant, it's not April 16th yet, so you're like, yes, I get that. If you've had to put in long hours to become a partner in your firm or to get through your residency, you understand that because that's sort of a risk-reward system, that's sort of an anticipatory system. This isn't the same thing as that. This is knowing that even in the midst of the suffering that any of us might be facing, that God is building, oh, thank God for this, he is building our joy. And that the suffering that we face now, whatever form it is, will eventually become the servant of our joy. That is different than having to suck it up and work hard and put in lots of hours. This is something where we look to God to be in control of it, not us. Jesus drank the cup of suffering that we could not drink. We, we couldn't. It would destroy us so that we could have these cups that we could handle or that he wants us to handle through his strength. Do you get that? He drank the cup that would destroy humankind. He took it on gratefully so we could have our little cups that honestly just pale in comparison. And we don't get there normally. When we're in the midst of suffering, I do this, all aboard the pity train, Right? This isn't fun. I don't like this. But what God has for us is not that we look so much temporally on the cup in front of us, is that we look at the cup that Jesus drank for us and we say, that's it. That's the one who took it on for me so I could be free. To drink from the cup of sorrow, to go through something hard, is to stand on the steps just below the view to glory. You're looking up at Jesus' glory, even in the midst of your suffering. So in the suffering that you may face in the week ahead, in the suffering that may be facing you in your marriage, with your children, at work, God, thank you in advance for how this suffering is going to become a servant of my joy. I don't see it. I don't know where it's going to come from. I don't actually have to know. Because I know your promises. I know what you did through Jesus Christ. I know what you can do through me. Lord, take this little cup of suffering that I have, Thank you for the huge cup that Jesus drank on my behalf and send me forward into the future that you have for me. So we can take that last image down now. Thank you guys. Jesus's table is for the broken. The cup, the oil is for the broken. The anointing is for the broken. And then the cup that we drink is for people who go through real suffering. And here's the funny thing. I want to encourage us with this as we close. In Matthew 26, the table, the the anointing, and the cup are all there. Just as the psalmist wrote of them in Psalm 23, centuries before Jesus' arrival, in Matthew 26, all three elements are present. So that's your homework. That's our homework together as a church, to dwell in Matthew 26 in the week ahead. Because it's the lead up to the cross. It's the end of the story. It's building up to this incredible conclusion. And it challenges us at every level. Because if you think about it, at Jesus' table were his enemies. His enemy, Judas, he named it. One of you will betray me. Guy's sitting right there. He names it, and yet he still serves him, and he still cares for him. And the disciples who didn't actively betray him, guess what they did when all the chips were down? They ran away, which we all do. We take off into the night when things get rough. 
And Jesus says to them, come sit at my table. And he would come back after his resurrection. He would restore them and care for them and give them back what they had thrown away, which was the opportunity to serve him and to love him. And it's a glorious picture of God's restoration. But at Jesus' table were his enemies. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I wonder if Jesus was thinking that as he sat at the Last Supper and looked out at his friends who were going to abandon him. Jesus is anointed. He says in Mark's gospel, he's anointed by a woman who's got some expensive perfume. She is anointing me for my burial. He got it. He knew what his anointing and his calling was for, and he knew that it was going to be messy. And finally, that cup of suffering, he drank all of it. But not before he first shared the cup of fellowship with those enemies who were actually his friends, who he saw more in them than they could ever have seen in themselves. Guys, if you're looking at the week ahead and you're going, I don't want to invite anybody. Like, that's hard. That's risky. It's kind of weird. Think about the risk that Jesus took for us if you follow him. Think about the open invitation he gave to each of us. And don't think about it in a guilty way. Think about it in a joyful way. This is the gift. This is the opportunity. These are the moments. Easter, Christmas, I know it's easy to hype them up, but there are so many people who have come to belong in a church because they happened to wander in on Easter and they knew they were loved. And that's our mission. Do you long for this for yourself? To find that sweet spot, that place where you know God delights in you? In the week ahead, as you read through Matthew 26, ask him. Ask him for his delight. And if you have people in your life that you're longing for them to be at table with Jesus, to understand that he has prepared the best seat in the house for you, whether that's your neighbor, whether that's your sister, whoever it is, go with confidence this week knowing that God longs for that as well and ask him to stir that up in your heart. I want to invite the band uh, to come join me up here now. And as they come up, I just want to invite everybody to Take whatever's in your hands, kind of put it to the side. And if you're comfortable with this, just open up your hands. Sometimes when I pray, I really need to do this because I just, if I feel like I'm supposed to be holding something, I can't release it. I invite you to picture the week ahead. Picture going to work tomorrow or going to school. Or picture getting your kids up in the morning and feeding them, whatever your day is going to look like Monday morning. And all the days that are ahead of that, the meetings and the stuff you're doing at night and the soccer practices. And rather than feeling any of that anxiety that comes, especially in a community that prides itself on being responsible and caring, may we instead just hold our hands open to show to God, God, we release to you the week ahead. It is your week. It's Holy Week. It's a week when people around the world are worshiping you and celebrating and anticipating the darkness of Good Friday and then the light and the glory of Easter. God, we hold out our open hands to you, praying for our friends and our neighbors who are far from you. We hold out open hands around our schedules so that we can be here to serve and to worship, to help make flowers, to love kids in our nursery, to do whatever it is that you've called each of us to do. Not because we got to look busy or we got stuff or whatever, but because you have called us, you have welcomed us 
at a table especially prepared for us in the midst of our chaos. So it is with open hands now that we ask you to use the week ahead, use our friendships and our connections for your glory. Bring the people here that you desire to be here, not just for Easter, but all the Sundays to come so that we may increasingly become a place where people belong and believe because they are loved. We ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.